hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I am your host. Good to have you here with me. This week on the podcast, I'm welcoming Ed Lawson, the mayor of Sparks. This show obviously is called Renoites, but as I talk to Ed about, I consider Reno, Sparks, Carson City, Tahoe, all of us to be kind of the same metro area in some ways. And it was great to be able to talk to Mayor Lawson about how he sees Sparks, what he wants the city to be, his plans for improving transportation, helping it grow. There's a lands bill to kind of expand the footprint of Sparks. We also talked about issues around homelessness, the Nevada Cares Campus, and what got him interested in local politics in the first place. Also, some of his hobbies. He's a big motorcycle guy, and we got to talk a little bit about ride motorcycles around the Sierras. Really, really great conversation, and I'm so grateful that he was able to come on the show and tell me a little bit about Sparks, our wonderful neighbors to the east. This episode is brought to you by DJ Trivia. I host trivia for DJ Trivia at several local venues, and it is super fun. It's one of the best jobs I've ever had, being able to hang out in local bars and restaurants, read trivia questions, play music. It's a really fun time, and it's free to play. So if you have not joined us at any DJ Trivia games, I hope that you will do so soon. You can find all the locations at djtrivianevada.com. This episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is the best local news source. Really, if you want to know what's going on in town, it's the best place to stay in the loop. I follow them on social media, so if you're on social media, definitely follow This Is Reno so you can see the headlines and subscribe as well. It's probably the best bang for your buck as far as local journalism and knowing what's going on in town. That's thisisreno.com. And now, this week's guest, Mayor Ed Lawson. Mayor Ed Lawson, welcome to Renoites. Thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. The best place to start, you were the mayor of Sparks. And when I first started this show, I talked to a friend of mine who was trying to put me in touch with a different elected official in Sparks and we were talking about the show. And she said, oh, well, your show's Renoites and this is a sparks person and i said oh like same difference you know like i consider us all kind of the same community and this friend of mine said oh no 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 like don't tell someone from sparks that they're just like reno light or they're just part of reno sparks is its own city it's its own thing we are one you know shared economy and shared community but sparks does have its own identity so if someone was moving to the area and wondering like what's the deal with sparks how do you describe Sparks to people who don't really know the Reno Tahoe Sparks area? Like what's your conception of what Sparks is as a city? In the city of Sparks, our elected officials view everything through the light of being a family oriented community. And when we make decisions, we're making decisions based on that, that aspect. We don't care what color skin you are, what your political affiliation is. We don't care about any of that. We just want to, if you're a family, we think that you should live with us here. And, uh, and we make those decisions in that light. Mm -hmm. So what are the elements you think that go into making a city family friendly or welcoming or, or family oriented? I think one is our festivals and things we have going on downtown. I think our parks are a huge part of that. The marina, obviously, is a great place to uh, walk around and, and just get to know your neighbor if you want to. We are putting in a second All Abilities play park at the marina, which is perfect for caregivers of autistic and, and challenged children to give them a little bit of a break. We're very, very proud of that program. And uh, we just continue to uh, move forward in that light is how do we make it a better experience for families here? Mm -hmm. 
And do you think there's a contrast there between Sparks as a family-oriented community versus Reno as a more tourist-oriented destination? Or or how do you differentiate between Sparks and Reno in terms of appeal for families or different ways that people want to live? We don't have the same tourism economy that Reno has. Obviously, they're in their downtown. I don't know how many thousands of hotel rooms there are. You know, we have the Nugget. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. pretty much it. And the Nugget's been a great partner as far as putting up the outdoor amphitheater. So that's entertainment, not just for tourists, but for our locals too. Mm-hmm. And I believe Toby Keith is coming this weekend. So I mean, that's going to be a fun concert to be at also. Right on. Yeah, this episode will come out after Toby Keith has been here, I guess. Okay. So if uh, listeners missed Toby Keith, sorry about that. <laughs> so Reno obviously has hotels and casinos as the core of the downtown and you mentioned sparks has the nugget but it's not a tourist oriented downtown the way that reno's is do you see that as something that is a major difference in the appeal of the downtown for sparks versus reno and what do you want sparks's downtown to look and feel like if not casino oriented obviously there's events but those are not all the time right Right. So what do you want Sparks downtown to look and feel like, if not a tourist destination on the day to day? I think it's going to become a place for people to live and, and work and play. We'll have 5,000 people living in a six square block area here in the next few years. That creates its own vibe. And so with that new vibe down there, I think uh, it becomes a little bit of an attraction for the tourists also. Mm-hmm. But it, it's still a hometown feel. What's going into making those shifts? Is it that people want to live in downtown areas? Is there conscious effort by you and the city to facilitate that type of growth downtown? What does that look like as far as the strategic planning piece of making Sparks what you want it to be? And that is absolutely part of it is the vertical part of downtown. We're also looking at Audi Boulevard to be more vertical. And then we'd like to be along the river and take that vertical and be uh, residential. Right now between I-80 and uh, the river to the south, there's less than 100 people that live there. We think we could put 25, 30,000 people down there and use that city center approach where you have high density housing and people can walk to work or they can walk to get a cup of coffee and and that type of deal. We can see it's already working in downtown Sparks. I don't know the exact number of people living down there right now, but I I know that almost every apartment is at full capacity, like 99%, which allows for people moving in and out. Mm -hmm. So it's just amazing what's happening there. We have two more projects to go on either side of the plaza by the same developer. So it's just, it's coming along to where we think it's the vibrancy, it's going to create its own uh, its own economy and it's in its own destination, if you will. I'm always concerned about sprawl. And when I think about Sparks growth in recent years and its suburbs, these entire new basically cities like Spanish Springs, all this is new to me. I grew up here in Reno and I moved away in 2001 and then moved back in 2017. And it feels like Sparks, I think, has grown more than Reno has in the last 10 years or so. And I always think of Sparks growth as being out rather than up in the past. Can you talk a little bit about how Sparks has changed? You've How long have you lived in Sparks? You've been here, what? 31 years. Oh yeah, forever. So you've seen Sparks change and kind of grow. What's your thoughts around how Sparks has grown versus how you would like to see it grow? What's your experience been of Sparks over the recent years in terms of growth? Well, I'll tell you exactly where we are is we are now out of land. 
we cannot any longer, we can't grow out. We have to grow up. We've been working on a land spill to get the BLM land to the east of us with our partners in Washoe County and Reno. We hope to have some language by Christmas time this year and introduce this bill in the February, March timeframe so that it can be finished up in this Congress. If we don't grow to the east and what we want to do is move our industrial to the east and make it closer to Story County where, you know, I I don't know if people realize that they're the 800 pound gorilla in the room that we're basically ignoring they'll have 50,000 jobs out there. And those 50,000 people that work out there, 80% of them live with us right here in Reno and Sparks. And 80% of that 80% lives north of I-80. So you can see with only one way in and out of there, a growth to the east would afford us to put a road in between La Posada and USA Parkway, which is an environmentally sound road. It saves 25 tons of carbon emissions each day if you only get 10,000 cars on it. Right now on I-80, I think the traffic count, the last I looked at was around 40,000 cars a day going through I-80. Not everybody's going to Story County, but there's a good percentage of them that are. So we can move some of that over, cuts the commute in half. We pick up the North Valleys from uh, Reno, and we have that alternate safe route to get out to work. This morning, there's another traffic accident, and I-80's backed up uh, eastbound all the way from USA Parkway all the way back up into town. So those folks, when they're sitting in traffic, they're not earning money, mm-hmm. and they got to make that money up somewhere. So I, I think all around, it makes sense to grow to the east. And people are trying to say that that is sprawl. I say it's infill. We're infilling between us and the job creator. Mm-hmm. And, and why not? Why wouldn't we grow towards them and keep those other widget makers, you know, for the Teslas and the switches and all the, the bigger manufacturers out there? Keep them in Washoe County, paying Washoe County taxes. And, and then we'll cater the size of lots for them to, mm-hmm. uh, to make that happen. Got it. Is that, can you talk a little bit about how the land bill works for people who aren't familiar with that process? So is it taking land that's currently BLM and incorporating it into City of Sparks so that you can grow into that land? Is that how it works? In essence, that's the simplified form of it. But yeah, you, uh, you identify what's called a disposal boundary, which we've identified. Then we identify the land within that. And we're in the process of identifying that land parcel number by parcel number at this point. Um, We also have a land survey going on that will go to Congress that will say we have X amount of residential, X amount of commercial, and X amount of industrial. That alone will tell us and help us give reasons for this expansion to the east. Now, there's other properties within Washoe County that Washoe County needs and Reno needs. Obviously, theirs is not as great as ours, the need, but it's still, you know, the rising tide floats all boats. So if Sparks is doing well, Reno's doing well. If our housing prices go through the roof because we have to go vertical, that means the Reno housing prices are going to go through the roof. It just follows on, along naturally. So I think we're, we're all in this boat together, and I think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. But the basic way that this happens is you take the land, identify it, and then you sell it at auction. And the developer who wants that, they bid on it. When they bid on it, they pay whatever that price is, X dollars for that parcel or pieces of land. And then we take 5% of that money goes direct to the Nevada school district, uh, school board. They get the 5% of the proceeds. 10% goes directly to the Washoe County Commission. 
And then the other 85% is put into a fund with the Department of Interior where we can claim it out to do environmental projects, infrastructure projects, you know, whatever it is that we think it is we need here. My hope is that that commission is made up of mostly citizens and not so many elected officials. <laughs> mm. I think uh, the citizens should determine where the proceeds of that money goes to. I know there's a lot of talk about doing some stuff along the river, conservation, trails. There's all kinds of different projects that people are interested in. But we have to first get this thing over the goal line before we can go spending our money. Right. What's the process been so far? So this land bill has been talked about for a long time, right? Is this something you've been working on for a bit? I've been working on this for about six years. I I had a meeting with Lance Gilman one time, and, and he showed me the Tri Center in Reno and Sparks. And you can put Reno and si- Sparks inside of the Tri Center. And then there's that gap of land. You know, if you if you look at the map, 395 goes down to the spaghetti bowl. Well, then I-80 kind of goes back up to the northeast as it goes out. So there's kind of a V shape there. So it's a natural connection to connect the top of that V USA Parkway in La Posada. And, you know, they have some problems with, uh, they don't have a lot of water in Story County. So when we build this road, we'll put in effluent so we can alleviate some of the flooding, we hope in Lemon Valley and send that effluent down. We could use it, you know, in a Sparks industrial area. But I certainly know that Story County would love every bit of the water that they can get from us. Mm -hmm. What does that look like as far as the relationship between Washer County and Story County and and Sparks and Story County? You were talking, I was listening to an interview about folks living here and paying taxes in Washer County and then working and supplying the labor force for Story as it kind of continues to grow. Is there any ability for them to build housing in story or is that the water issue that people are going to need to live here and work there is that part of the reason i think that's the the larger part of the reason you know is just the the water itself for story county you know it's a tough road to hoe because you know they gave away a lot of money for tax incentives there will be a time here down the road when those incentives run out and story county will will be pretty flush with dollars but right now you know everyone thinks they're rolling in cash well they're they're really not so it's uh, going to be an interesting balancing act for them because of the water situation mostly. What responses have you had to the idea to put this road in between La Posadas and the TRI? Are people generally supportive of that or what kind of conversations are happening around it? Yeah, I think people are very supportive of it as it's another safety outlet. Imagine something happens in the Vista Narrows. Uh, we have a traffic accident. We have an earthquake and takes out I-80. Your alternative is to go all the way to Carson City and then back around through Fernley and back to I-80. This would create another way to get out of the valley in, in case of an emergency or a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. And it also provides to get that commute traffic off of I-80. I-80 is the, is the national you know, supply chain with the dredging of Port of Oakland in, in recent years. There's bigger ships come into Port of Oakland now than they ever have before. So there's a lot of trucks traffic that is supplying the rest of America that drives right through Reno and Sparks. Mm-hmm. And then we're currently clogging it up with commuter traffic that could go another way. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I think that's part of the, the issue. And then the safety factor of it, too. You know, you're doing, I don't know if you've been on I-80 uh, in the morning commute, but if you're not doing 75, you're probably not keeping up with traffic. And an accident at 75 on a two-lane highway is pretty devastating. And especially in the wintertime, and, you know, we've seen this happen where trucks jackknife and people get pinned in cars. You know, I think 
thankfully, I don't believe we've lost any lives at this point, but it still hinders the production and time for the employees. Can we talk a little bit more about the Audi development? Because that's something I've seen happen in, and that's closer to Reno. So I think there's also this conversation around bridging the Latino communities in Reno and Sparks and Audi Mm -hmm. being a big part of that. Can you talk a little bit about development that's happening on the Audi area and kind of the neighborhoods closer to Reno and what's happening in that regard? You know, the generator's gone in and they're going into the old Lowe's building there. And that Lowe's building, what they want to do is uh, have the Bernie Man art people making art there. They're planning on 150 uh, artist lofts. They want to put in a brewery restaurant with, you know, glass walls so that you can see everything that's going on over there. We think that's going to be a great attraction for the city of Sparks. And it just does so happen to basically sit on the border of Reno and Sparks. That park across the street is actually in Reno. There's a little peninsula that comes out and picks up Paradise Park. Reno surrounds that area. We think it's uh, prudent, and and I've reached out to the Hispanic community to uh, talk about how they want to develop that, what they want to see down there. Um, One of the ideas that uh, I've seen is uh, Olivero Street in L.A. is a a Hispanic-themed area with hundreds of shops where people actually turns into like a touristy area on the weekends where people go and shop and have dinner and go to the bars or whatever in, in that area. And it's been a huge boon for that area. We think something like that works for us. And then we have the big connector is the Audi Boulevard is going to be a complete street. And what a complete street means is you have a sidewalk and then you have a bike path and then you have the travel lane. You have separated all three of those modes of travel. And so bicycles aren't running into people and cars aren't running into bicycles. And that complete street will go around from Pyramid all the way around to I-80. That turns into Wells Avenue which happens to be the Hispanic heart of Reno, too. So we think connecting those two populations together, making it easier to make that transition from Reno to Sparks and Sparks to Reno is a good thing for both cities. Yeah, and it's good to hear that there is the infrastructure for bikes and pedestrians as a part of that project, because I'm a big advocate for things like public transit and any kind of non-car transportation being an option for people, which oftentimes it is not. It is. And, you know, that's kind of what the idea between a city center is, that you would take uh, alternate transportation to get to a city center. So let's say you lived in the Audi city center and you wanted to come watch a concert in the downtown entertainment city center, we'll call it. Rather than trying to find a parking spot and drive, you could ride your bicycle, walk or take the bus. The, The bus station obviously drops off right there in Victorian Square. Mm-hmm. So we're that's we're kind of looking at ways. That, I mean, these are not new ideas. These, these are ideas that have been used for thousands of years in Europe. We're, we're just adopting it a, a little earlier for for our purposes because of our land constraint. Mm-hmm. We have to be creative and innovative in the way that we plan for our future, because what it boils down to in this whole thing is our property tax structure is the most regressive in America. Nobody else does it the way we do it. So just to kind of sum that up real quick is, number one, we give you a 65% discount on the value of your property. So now you're only paying 35% tax on 35%. And then on that 35%, we discount that by 75% over the next 50 years. 
So if you have a 50-year-old house, that house is actually only paying somewhere around 10, 12, 14% tax rate when it takes, you know, a lot more than that to run a city. So what we find ourselves is in this catch-22 where you have to build a house to replace a house because at around five years, the property tax system actually works in backwards for us because of inflation and because of the discount that's going to the house. About five years, we have to build another house to replace that house so we can continue this whole cycle. So you can see exponentially as we keep ramping up and have to grow faster and faster and faster. Las Vegas is a great example of that. Reno, we try to be a little bit more prudent in our growth, but it still comes down to the property tax system and local governments having to grow. Mm -hmm. What's it like being a mayor in a city that has that kind of tax structure where, and not just our city, but our state in general, like we are a low budget state. Basically, we don't have a lot of money. So what's it like being an elected official in a place that is constantly low on money and does not have the structures to be able to provide all the services that people ask for? Like, what's that like dealing with that financial challenge? It's just an inherent part of your job. It is. And that's exactly what it is. It's uh, you have to be creative. You have to look at every alternative. You have to be prudent. You have to, I mean, literally look at every nickel that goes out the door. And we do that in Sparks. And we, you know, we run on the razor's edge many times, many years, but somehow figure a way to, to make it happen because we have some safety valves here or there. But the bottom line is we have to be very diligent. And then try and explain that to a lot of our new residents, especially like, hey, what, you know, why don't you do this or that? And well, hey, you're not in California anymore. <laughs> right. you know, I was going to say, people, people coming from California, <laughs> it's a whole different picture out here financially, right? Exactly. You know, you, you moved here because our taxes are low. Well, that, that comes at a price. That means you don't get all the same services at the same level you got over there. So it's, it's an education process. And I'm not saying we're going to close the doors to people from California. We welcome them. We, you know, we think they're going to be great additions to our community. It's just they, they, they have to understand that Nevada is a different state than California and probably one of the most unique states in, uh, in America. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the river. You know, Sparks has a river running through it that's not being utilized as much as it could. What's going on as far as development around a Sparks riverfront or making the most of the Truckee? So you're right. You know, we have the river and every city in America would love to have a river run through it. Uh, ours has tilt up concrete on it. That was a bad decision back in whenever that happened in the 70s or 60s. Now it's time to take our river back. And so the land spill will allow us to move industrial up on the hill to the east, closer to the employment center, easier commute for them. It's easier delivery of product. I mean, a lot of different things. It puts them on I-80 outside of Reno Sparks area. There's a lot of good things about moving the industrial up on the hill. But at the same time, we'll put an in residential overlay along the river. And we've kind of identified from uh, Rock Boulevard out to Vista and from Greg Street to the river as being a residential overlay. I mean, right now, industrial super hot. So, you know, no one's going to tear down their industrial to put up houses. But as that cools off in time and it's less expensive to build up on the hill and you're closer to IED, all the other logistic things that we talked about, 
we think that that transition. So that's a transition that's not going to happen in the next two years. That's more of a decades-long transition. But as we take back our river and we have more people on the river, a lot of the issues that happen along the river go away. You know, homeless issues, uh, you know, some of the assaults and things that happen in those kind of areas when there's nobody really around go away also because now people are there to witness it and and those folks obviously don't want to be in the light of day. Mm-hmm. One of my general understandings of what makes neighborhoods safe and livable is that there's a constant use of them by different people at different times of the day, that a naturally healthy neighborhood or environment has a variety of uses, including residents, including businesses, and just more eyes on the street basically makes a safer and healthier street a neighborhood. You mentioned homelessness, which is one of the biggest issues in Reno right now. It's one of the things that I follow really closely. I've had a couple folks on the show already around issues of homelessness in general. So can you talk a little bit about what Sparks is doing? I know you're on the Community Homeless Advisory Board. Can you talk a little bit about what is happening? I know we have the Nevada Cares Campus, and there's this collaboration between Reno, Sparks, Washoe County. I know Washoe County is now running Cares. Uh, What's your impression of what's going on with homelessness in Reno. What are you doing as a city and what do you see us doing collectively as a region? So let me first, I'm going to start off with what we're doing in Sparks and our HOPE team. And every chance I get to brag about them, I I do because it's three officers, one sergeant, two patrol officers, and they do nothing but contact homeless people. They're continually out there. As a matter of fact, I just got an email of what they've done in the last week and you would be uh, amazed. So I'm hoping that I can share some of those statistics in the very near future. But the amount of people and the bad people that they're arresting, you know, in this last one was a pedophile, people with uh, assaults out there. There's an entire underground community that happens within the homeless community that if you don't comply with their rules, they'll set your tent on fire, beat you up. And there has been actually one death along the river recently, I mean, within the last couple of years, that has to be addressed. And it's it's way we've done it. And I, we've been very, very successful is through this HOPE team. And, and in essence, the way this basically works is we those three officers do nothing but go around and basically tap you on the shoulder every 15 minutes and say, hey, do you want services? Hey, do you want services? Hey, do you want services? And if you don't want services, you're going to either get tired of being tapped on the shoulder every 15 minutes or, or daily, whatever, you know, the contact is you'll get services or you'll move along in those contacts is where we're finding these bad people with these arrest warrants out. Uh, one of the arrest warrants that we got was uh, from Southern California and this guy hasn't been seen in five years. And here he is living on the streets of uh, sparks. We think that this program is working very well. We've helped over 100 people get into services. The guys are just doing a great job. For them, it's more like a calling or, or you know, it's, it's a passion for them to help people. It's a different way to serve your community. And it, to me, I, I like that idea. We ask police officers to be everything from a guidance counselor to a parole officer to you know a, a use of deadly force and, and all the things that go along with this. And no one can be an expert in every single area. So we're looking more at the siloed approach and having that work. So now if we have a homeless issue, 
our patrol officers just turn that over to the Hope team and the Hope team deals with it. So it keeps our patrol officers out from dealing with people that they probably don't know have or have the skills to exactly deal with, you know, correctly. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I think there's some benefits. It's working out. It's as a matter of fact, it's worked out so well. The sheriff's department has stood up a hope team now. And so has the university police. Okay. So they're seeing what we're doing is working. Hopefully uh, Reno will come on board with us one day because I think as a region, and then just break down a quick stat here. 75% of the people that are homeless have a mental health problem. The other 25% are basically a lifestyle choice. So there's, that 25% is the predators. The 75% is the prey. So we can help that 75%. We're never going to help that 25%. So if we're continually tapping you on the shoulder, checking for arrest warrants, uh, you know, all the things that we do in Sparks, we do that as a region. We think that that 25% may go find someplace else to live or figure out a different way to live. And that's that's what we're after, is making our streets safe and helping people that absolutely are most vulnerable population that needs our help. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that came through the CARES campus to kind of pivot over to the CARES campus. The Community uh, Homeless Advisory Board has been stood up for about three years, I think, or four years at this point. And when we had the opportunity last fall to fund the emergency shelter, which is what the big tent is down there on 4th Street, we all jumped on it and we said, yes, let's do it. We were able to use our CARES Act money to fund that. A Sparks portion came out at around four and a half million of, of the 16 million. And I forgot what Reno and, and Washoe put in, but it turned out to around 16, 17 million bucks that we put in for this emergency shelter. Well, that's only one piece of that entire campus. The Wells family decided to sell their land off to us. So this entire campus now will be 15 acres. And in this 15 acres, we're going to address everything from transitional homes, banking and finances, mental health services. I mean, just everything. We're going to have a place for the pets that we already have a place for pets now, but we'll have that, you know, that's a big deal for folks that are homeless. They want to have their their animals with them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're addressing all those issues. We are in a program called Built for Zero. And we want to get to a, an idea where we are zero increase. We'll never be rid of homeless. We'll never, that will never go away. But the idea is, is to establish what our homeless population number is. Let's say it's for us, it may be it's 400, 200, 400, whatever the number is, that we stay at 400, that we never go up to seven or 800, that we're staying at 400. So that means we got to transition them through this process get them the help that they need, get them the transitional housing, get them the ability to uh, earn a living and have a place to live at the end of the day in the time frame that it takes another person to come in. It's a juggling act with many, many balls in the air. So it's going to be tough to do, but we got to take on this challenge. I, I just firmly believe that that 75% of the population, I, I can't, I just can't imagine living that way, living in fear of, your tent getting burned down or you getting assaulted or killed even, I, I wouldn't want to live that way. Mm-hmm. An important part, I think, of any solution for dealing with homelessness is there needs to be multiple options for places for people to stay. I don't think that the CARES campus is the end-all be-all. We don't want people living there forever. The thing that seems to be missing a lot of times from these conversations is 
actual housing options? Like what is the long-term option? I've heard that there are people at the safe camp who are ready to get into housing, but there is no right housing for them right now. And I know you mentioned a lot of the folks that are unhoused right now have mental health issues, but a lot of times too, it's just economics that sometimes people are losing a job or they have a health condition and they have medical expenses. So there are people that are kind of falling into homelessness, not because they're necessarily mentally ill or not because they are, you know, unhousable, but it's a financial thing. Is that something that's being addressed directly? There's this housing first model, the idea that you get people in housing first, that stability. What are Sparks and Reno and Washoe County collectively doing around the the supply issue of housing? You know, there are people who are ready to move into more stable housing. So what does that piece look like? That is obviously one of the big pieces and and especially where we are today. You know, we're, we've seen uh, our housing prices just skyrocket. Mm-hmm. That's why one of my ideas with going vertical in the city centers, that provides more housing options that we maybe will let some of that pressure off. The problem is finding subsidized housing is very, very difficult. And if you're a developer, subsidized housing is not you know, the sexy dream, especially when you have a booming economy like we do right now, mm-hmm. when you could turn around on the same piece of land and, you know, quadruple your money. Right. So it's, that's the whole issue there. Now, how do we steer that as a government? I'm a little bit less inclined to, to steer developers as I am to kind of, you know, encourage them. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to force developers to do any particular one thing. But I do want them to, you know, have the idea of of, uh, of a community value system in here. So maybe, you know, a portion, two, three, four apartments, you know, could be uh, for subsidized housing, that mm-hmm. kind of a deal. But the numbers are so close, especially with the cost of building materials and whatnot, that even one apartment may not pencil uh, the project out on a couple of hundred apartments. There's a whole another complicated system and all that. And then the way the real estate works and and then the way the one percenters in America, basically they move money around like we do in monopoly. They'll buy an apartment complex. And what we're seeing right now is uh, they raise the rates as people go out three years from now, that property value may have doubled in price. So they sell it off and then the next person takes it. And then you throw in the whole construction defect law in the state of Nevada, and there's not a lot of people that want to build, you know, uh, houses or multifamily for sale because of the being roped back into a construction default law. Oh, I, what, what is that law? I've never heard of that before. So basically what that means is, say a guy puts the doorbell in wrong on multiple houses in a development. Everybody gets sued. The painter gets sued, the floor covering guy gets sued, everybody gets sued. Hmm. So what ends up happening is the guys who really make the money are the lawyers. It's a law that I, I'm not particularly keen on because, you know, it was a doorbell problem. Why aren't you suing the doorbell guy? That's those kind of things where you bring everybody back in for that lawsuit and everybody absolutely has to chip in at some point. So what that does is jacks your prices up so that I can cover this impending lawsuit that will probably happen. Mm, got it, got it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the Community Homeless Advisory Board. 
so you are on that board. How does that work? So the idea I understand is basically it's inputs from a variety of local leaders, people involved in the homelessness community. Who's on that board and how does it influence what happens around homelessness in the area? So it's uh, started out and it's uh, two from Sparks, two from Reno and two from Washoe County elected officials. That's how we started this thing. What our main goal was in the beginning was to just get everybody in the same room and talk about what they were doing. And what we found is everybody had their own little silo. We only deal with round pegs in this silo, and we only deal with square pegs in this silo, and we only deal with triangles over in this silo. Well, the triangle is not talking to the round or the square peg person. So when somebody comes for services at the triangle spot, they just turn them away. When they could say, oh, you look like a round peg. You need to go talk to these guys. So that's kind of what we did. Opened up that line of communication to see how we could do that. But I'm going to tell you, at this point, we still have 700 beds that have some type of barrier for entry, you know, no matter what the barrier is, it's that either round or square peg that are open, that people could be in right now. It's something that we continually are working on, but getting everybody in the same room is, is seems to be working. And that's where this whole campus came out and this whole program for the Homeless Advisory Board and, and what we've done to progress this forward. You know, and I hate to say it, but without the pandemic, we probably would have never done this. We would have never have had the money to do it. Mm -hmm. Government basically raining dollars down upon us made it pretty easy for us to say, you know what, this is the kind of community we want to be. We want to help the most vulnerable people in our community. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the best part of it. As we're going forward with the uh, CHAP board, it will be that place where everybody gets together to bring up the ideas and direction of where we want to go in the future. The CHAP board will give direction to not, I mean, it'll be advice, not direction. Mm -hmm. Let me clarify that. We will give advice to Washoe County as to what areas we think they should be addressing as to helping the homeless population. And it'll also be a place for people to come and talk to us about their ideas where you're not getting wrapped up in a bureaucracy and it's all out in the open. Uh, so everybody in the public can hear it and, and be a part of it. Right on. Um, last question around the homelessness stuff is what's the relationship like between actual unhoused people and the homeless advocacy community and the government institutions and the CHAB board and stuff. Cause I follow not super closely, but I follow kind of all of the different views around homelessness in Reno and a lot of these local organizations. And I see some of them doing really good direct mutual aid work. So they're like providing meals in spots where there are not good meals. They are providing services that are missing. So I see this like direct mutual aid stuff that I think is really beneficial but then I also see this kind of maybe combative or adversarial relationship sometimes between the homeless advocacy organizations and activists and the city, both Sparks and Reno and Washoe County. So there seems to be an opportunity for maybe better communication or collaboration. Like we have the CARES campus where there are tons of people who need services. And then we have organizations who are trying to provide direct aid. And it seems like there's still this butting heads kind of approach. And I don't know what causes that or or where that comes from, or if that's solvable. How is that working? Like, are you learning things from each other? Is there opportunity for better collaboration? And what's your experience been like? Because that feels to me as an outside observer, 
as one of the challenges around homelessness right now is that there doesn't seem to be a unified front between the government, the services, the advocacy organizations, the people who need services. What's your experience been like working with the whole range, including people that are outside of the actual CHAB or the you know official structures? Well, it's you're you're exactly correct. There can always be better uh, collaboration and communication. There hasn't been that in the past with the advocates and and what we're doing. One of the problems that we have is people think they're doing a good thing by going down to a homeless encampment and dropping off a bunch of clothes in a black plastic bag or going down and, you know, bringing pizza down there and feeding people. Well, one of the things that you need, and keep in mind, we got to keep in mind that 75% of these people are mentally ill. And the reason to get out of bed and go someplace is to get food and services. And if you're bringing it to them, as I addressed the the mayors in a meeting not too long ago around the state of Nevada, we call that room service. You know, if you live in a hotel and somebody brings you your meal and your food and, and you have everything you need to stay where you are, then uh, you have no motivation to get out and help yourself. Now, they can look at it from the other side is that, yeah, they do need these services because maybe they can't find their way or they can't uh, help. But we would rather see that instead of feeding people outside of the areas that designated, get involved and help feed those folks where they need to be fed. There was a time here a few years back where you could get six meals a day if you're homeless. And that's pretty good. And so what they're doing is calling each other on the phone and said, hey, they're serving lasagna over here. They got bologna sandwiches here. So I'm going to lasagna. You know, and, and they have literally a selection of food and, and ways to, to get it. We're trying to curtail that. It creates, number one, a lot of trash, and especially along the river. I mean, we've seen it. Grant Denton, who is doing a great job, his insight in it is immeasurable from being homeless for nine years uh, and a drug addict, that uh, he has some great solutions to it. He was cleaning up a, an area along the river under the Wells Overpass that was uh, around 13 yards of trash every week. The people just bringing stuff down to give to the homeless population. And then that creates its whole other issue. So there needs to be some collaboration, some cooperation on both sides. Yeah. Personally, I haven't had, uh, I've, I've offered to uh, meet with them. I haven't had any of them take me up on the offer to uh, meet with uh, certain advocates. But, you know, we'll get there. It'll come. I'm, I'm not too worried about it. Uh, I think we're making great strides. I think as we see this program working, the Built for Zero program working, and we're transitioning people into permanent housing in the future, it's not going to happen overnight. We just keep moving the ship in the same direction. We're going to get people that are going to get on board. You're always going to have the detractors, but you know you can't please 100% of everyone. Our most popular mayor in Sparks, he got 73% of the vote. That means 28% didn't want to vote for him. So you're never going to have 100%. So you're always going to have that 25, 30% that no matter what you do, they're never going to like it. Mm-hmm. So we, we're just going for the greater good and what we think is the right thing to do. And, and I think we're in the right track as a community and going in that direction. Yeah, I have a general attitude of assuming positive intent from everybody about the work that they are doing. And even if people disagree on strategies or approaches, mm-hmm. 
I have no doubt that everyone who is involved in trying to help the unhoused population has their heart in the right place and is trying to do what they can in the best way that they know how. So that's encouraging. I think that you seem to have that same attitude that we're all we're all trying to get to the same place. We're all trying to help people who need help or all trying to make our city more livable for everybody. Right. And that's exactly what it's all about. There's no alternative motives here. Part of what I think my job is, is to help the people that can't help themselves. And I, I take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about you and how you got to be the mayor of Sparks and and your story. This show is partly you know profile show about people who live in the Reno Sparks area. And you lived here for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in local government? So what made you decide that was a path for you? You've lived in Sparks for 30 years. When did you get involved in trying to actually have a real influence on how the city grows and changes? When did you decide? I know you became mayor last year at the passing of our previous mayor in Sparks, but you were planning on running in 2022 anyways, right? So when did you decide to get involved in local politics? Why do you think that was a good way to affect change? What's your political story been like in the area? Well, I'll tell you how basically happened was... I worked for Young Electric's sign company for 17 years. I held several jobs with them from branch manager to the outdoor billboard plant manager. And it kind of came along in that time when I was the billboard manager that there was the big fight in the 2000, you know, in that area of getting rid of billboards and scenic Nevada and, and then that whole argument. And I got involved as the spokesman for the billboard industry. And at the same time, part of my job was to go around to different city councils and county commissions and renew leases or renew business licenses. So I would have to appear in front of these different bodies all over northern Nevada. There are many nights where I was driving home at midnight from a county commission meeting or something in the rural Nevada. It was just something that at the end of the day, my my kids had moved out. My wife uh, worked a little bit later in the evening. I really did not like coming home to an empty house at 5 o'clock, 5.30 in in the evening and being alone for that time. So I said, you know what? I have more to give to my city. I've been a coach. I've been, you know, involved. I'm very involved with my Rotary Club. And I just said, you know what? I have have more to give to my city. So I decided basically – with the encouragement of some folks to, to run for office in 2010. It was tough. I only had, uh, I raised $18,000 the very first time I ran. My opponent raised over 60000 and I ended up beating him by 14 points. So that kind of started my political career, and I think people saw that, you know, my heart's in the right place. This is not an ego thing for me. At the end of the day, you know, I'm going to sit on my porch and and be happy with what I did for my city. So, and I need to have something happen for my city. So, and especially like this lands bill is so, so important as to where we are going to end up in the coming decades. For me, it's, it's like the sign industry, you know, we drive down the street every once in a while. My wife would say, okay, we're going to play the game this time. Tell me which signs you did on this street. And I'd tell her about, well, I did that the sign at the convention center there. You know, it was this and that. And, we, and there was a whole story behind it. But that's a little piece of Ed Lawson that's still up there that nobody else in the world cares about except me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I care that I have a mark on our community. And, and there's those, those landmarks all around the community that I had a little piece to do with. Right on. 
I wonder sometimes about local politics and how they relate to like partisanship and national narratives. Cause I follow, I think everyone follows the national news a lot more because cable news has kind of taken over and everything around politics has been elevated to this like hyper-partisan left versus right thing. And I think as a mayor of a small to medium sized city, you probably get to avoid lots of that. Like you're the, the mayor for everybody basically, I think is the way that people view the mayor, although maybe a little bit less. So I know there's, you know, during election season, it can feel a little bit more partisan sometimes. What's your experience been like running for an office that is less distinctly partisan than maybe some like the statewide offices, things like that, that have more of a political bent to them? Well, it's, I mean, in the, in the end of the day, really what city councils do in the state of Nevada is really five things. For us, it's police and fire, parks, sewer, and our local roads. That's pretty much the five things that we do. Now, it's really hard to get to be a political side on any one of those issues. Everybody needs police fire. Everybody needs roads and parks. And everybody needs to flush their toilet. So it's pretty hard, in my estimation, to turn that into some kind of partisan issue. For me, it's not a, a political issue. It's an issue my idea might be different than yours, but let's see what we can do to come up with the right idea. So I, I don't see the political part of it, and I don't get involved with it. I was more of a libertarian, you know, growing up. Nevada was a libertarian state. Uh, you know, a mm-hmm. libertarian idea is basically you don't mess with me. I won't mess with you. You do you, I'll do me. And if you need some help, please ask, and I'll, be, I'll probably be glad to help you. But it's that that kind of cooperation has gone out the window in recent years, unfortunately. But I'm I'm going to live my life the way that I think is right. And I treat everybody the same, regardless of their political affiliation, their race, their creed, their color. None of that stuff matters to me. I mean, in my story, I have a pretty, uh, pretty diverse background. You know, my dad was married to a black woman in the 70s. That was not very popular, uh, obviously. We did busing in, in Las Vegas where 50% of our high school was uh, was black population. Many of those people I played football and sports with in high school, I'm still friends with today. So that's, those are not issues to me that, that deserve a political view. It's how do we right some wrongs? Yeah, we know there's some wrongs that, that have been there. There is some inherent racism and we got to address those things. And, and we, I think we're going to get better at it as we go along. You know, the generation before me uh, was very racist, and I saw it. Even though they didn't think they were racist, they were. And I'm sure that the generations behind me think that I'm racist in some way, too, But even though I don't think I am. So it's, it's, it's an it's a ever-evolving thing that, that I think that we'll all get to some point, you know, in the future to make this work. But it's not an issue for me, like I said, politically. It's not about you know, left or right. This is about what's right. That's it. What's the right thing to do, period. Mm -hmm. It's still early for 2022 to be talking election stuff. But what do you see as the big issues for the race in 2022? I don't, again, I don't follow this early about who's running or things like that. I don't even know if that's part of the conversation yet. But what do you kind of see as being potential topics or issues in 2022 around the mayoral race or the direction of sparks? Well, for us, it's going to be land. It's going to be a place to grow. 
we cannot continue to be a family-oriented community if you can't afford to live here with your family. We don't want to turn into San Francisco. As great as San Francisco is, they have their own problems over there that we don't need to have in little old Sparks and Reno. So growth is, is our number one issue. And how we handle that growth, I think, is, the, is the, the issue there. And to me, that's not a partisan issue whatsoever. That is survival. We have to survive as a city because the other way to go is backwards. And going backwards is, is not an option. We got to change the property tax system. All these things that we need to talk about that affect local government directly, the state government does not have to deal with. They don't have to balance the budget for that small community or deal with those type. You know, they got to balance a bigger budget, obviously, but they have other issues that they're dealing with that aren't as localized. You know, when we go to a grocery store and I stand beside our assembly person, they probably will recognize me before they recognize the assembly person. It's not saying that I'm any more important. I'm just the face of government for most of my community. You know, and I like doing that. And I'm happy to stand in in the grocery aisle and talk to anybody at length of whatever they want to talk about. I think people have a misunderstanding of the way local government works. And I, I think that that explanation, the education, that's part of my job also is to educate people on what exactly we do and don't have control over. And some of those issues that are very partisan we have zero control over. There are things we can do to affect those issues. Yes, of course. But we don't have a control where we, we're not going to make an ordinance that says, uh, you know, I don't even, I can't even think of one off the top of my head. I mean, this, we're just not going to make an ordinance that deals with the abortion or, you know, that's not in our wheelhouse. That's not something that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to deal with the five things. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think I had one other question around this and then I was going to ask you about motorcycle stuff. Oh yeah, please. Let's talk Harleys. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's enough. That's enough political stuff. Um, <laughs> you, uh, so you ride motorcycles. I follow you on Facebook and I see like very often you're posting about going out for rides and stuff. So tell me about motorcycle riding. Cause I've never ridden a motorcycle. I feel like they're scary. You know, my mom always told me you're so dangerous. So I have this like automatic feeling of, Oh my gosh, that's a scary thing. But you're like a big motorcycler. What got you into riding motorcycles? What's so appealing about it? Why are they so cool? Why do you like them? The one thing, and my dad was a motor cop in Las Vegas for 30 years. He was on the force for 30 years. And he rode a motorcycle, I think 26 out of those 30 years. That was what his passion was. So when I became old enough to drive, I didn't get a car. I got a motorcycle. And I rode my motorcycle with my dad and my dad, you know, I I would go to debriefings on Friday and Saturday nights because, you know, all my friends had to be home at midnight and my dad didn't get off work till one. So I'd go to debriefing and sit around and talk to the cops down there. So it was always a pleasurable experience for me. And when I got a little older, I'd rode uh, mostly Japanese bikes back in the day in the 70s and 80s, but got into the Harleys here about 10 years ago and just absolutely love the culture of the Harley people. Some of the most giving, wonderful people in the world. And it's just the one thing that you share that is a passion. And it's kind of hard to explain that passion. I mean, I don't know if, you, if you're a bird watcher, if uh, bird watching has becomes a kind of a ingrained into your soul kind of a passion that riding a, a motorcycle is. But I can literally go anywhere in America. And I just took a trip by myself 
Uh, I drove, went 2,200 miles in eight days and all alone went over the California coast all the way down towards the Mexican border and then across over into Arizona and back up home. And everywhere I stopped, somebody stopped to talk to me about my motorcycle, about where I'm from, about something. And it always turned into a pleasant conversation. And that's one of the other things. I just absolutely love that part of it. And if there's another motorcycle, like, oh, my goodness. I sat in a little town in uh, California, and this guy's coming from inland and heading towards the coast, and I'm on the coast heading inland, and we stopped at the same place for lunch, and, and we probably had a 40-minute conversation just on Harleys and, and riding and, and clothing, and I mean, it just the whole gambit that had absolutely zero to do with politics. It had all to do with just the experience and the passion of that particular sport, and that's, that's why. We have a group that we ride with, too. It's about six couples. And we get together on Wednesday nights, go to dinner, ride our motorcycles all out in different places. We'll be out for street vibrations, uh, having dinner, you know, visiting different places. And then the other thing to think about in this whole deal is we sit in some of the best country in the world to ride a motorcycle. The Sierra Nevadas are gorgeous. The roads for 99% of them are in perfect condition. So motorcycles go very well in those. And there's nothing more fun than riding the the corners and the twisties and uh, just seeing some new country and coming over that next hill and, and the view of Lake Tahoe when you come over Lake Tahoe or, or even, you know, going north uh, all the way up through there. Uh, I found Bernie Falls. I got lost on my motorcycle and found Bernie Falls by accident. And what a gorgeous place that is. You know, so these, these are kind of cool little things that these mistakes uh, of getting lost, you know, kind of accidentally on purpose finds new places. And it, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I do like that there's this kind of like subculture, this like nerdy talking about bikes and it's not just bikes, but any kind of hobby that you have when you find other people who are into the same thing and you get to get into these conversations and talk about gear and talk about stuff like that seems kind of fun. And then also that you mentioned that it is also you travel by yourself and it's a good way to like get out on the road and see some of the country. And that makes sense to me that there's this appeal both as a individual activity and also a a community that you are automatically a part of by participating in it. And so, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I will tell you one of the things that I thought was the coolest in my trip was I went to the Salton Sea. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but that this was a big planned community back in the sixties where they filled up this desert area with water and it just, it was too salty. So it's to the point now where not even the animals can live in it any longer. But you go down there and there's streets with street signs. And this entire community of for like, I think it was 50 or 75,000 people, that's completely the skeletal part of it is still there. Hmm. And, and that was kind of cool as a public official to see that and not letting your chickens get ahead of, uh, of themselves in that whole planning aspect. But it's stuff like that that I absolutely love. I, I found a canyon that uh, had some petroglyphs on it in that area. They're just, like I said, it's just the little things. The smells is probably the best. I remember a, a trip. I was in Arizona. It's coming down a canyon, and it started off with the smell of the pine trees. And as you got lower, it's transitioning in. There's some lilac in there. And then at the bottom, it was kind of sagebrushy. So it, that, that whole transition was was kind of fun and that those memories stick in your head forever mm-hmm. oh that's cool i never thought about that yeah the extra kind of sensory 
appeal of a motorcycle versus a car. You know, you're actually outside. You're actually in nature even while you're traveling. Well, if you're in a car, you're a little, you know, in a bubble. Yep. Cage drivers, as we call them. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, what else do you want people to know? Anything that we missed? What do you uh, What do you want people to know about Sparks? About you? Anything that that we didn't cover? You know, I, I just want to I want everyone to know that I have had the great pleasure of working with the city council. You know, we don't agree a hundred percent on everything, but we have the ability to talk to each other and express an opinion and have a a, a disagreement without it becoming personal. And that's a very unique relationship in politics, I think, and because there's, there's a certain ego about being an elected person. We don't allow egos. <laughs> At least I try not to allow them. You're not doing what's best for the community. You're doing what's best for you. I don't like that when I see it in certain politicians. So we try to keep that ego out of the equation for us in Sparks. And I, I think our council, for the most part, we do a, a very good job of that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really awesome to have you on here to talk about Sparks because, again, it's the podcast is Reno Whites. But even if some people in Sparks don't like it, I'm still going to think of us as one kind of united community with, you know, got different differences in Sparks and Reno for sure. And they each have their own character to some degree. But we're all, you know, we're all in this thing together. So it's good to be able to chat with you about Sparks and learn a little bit more about about your city and that part of town. Thank you, Connor. We appreciate being on here. We'll we'll get you to come around and think maybe it'll be a Reno Sparksites. I don't know. <laughs> sure. What are people <laughs> from Sparks called? Yeah, that's a great question. Have you ever seen that uh, cartoon? You know, what do you call them? Sparkies, sparklers, sparkites. <laughs> yeah. yeah oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. What is it? Is there an actual answer to that one? Uh, there isn't. <laughs> oh, it's people from Sparks. People from Sparks. That's it. Perfect. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Ed. Okay. Thank you. Listeners, thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites, and special thanks to Mayor Ed Lawson of Sparks for coming on the show to talk a little bit about what is going on in that part of town. I really appreciate him taking the time. It was a great conversation, so thank you very much, Mayor, for coming on the show. As always, if you enjoyed this episode or any other, help me spread the word. This is a new podcast. I don't know if you know this, but getting people to find out about and listen to a podcast is not easy. It's a lot of work. I'm trying really hard to spread the word, let people know that this podcast exists. If you know anyone who might find it interesting or entertaining, spread the word. Let your friends know. Share posts on social media. It really does help people find the show, and I appreciate that. So thank you. Also, if you want to leave me a review, you can go to Apple Podcasts. Positive reviews really help people find the show. So thank you for that. Or you don't have to do any of those things. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you, whether you share posts or not. That's all I've got for you this week. See you all next time.